Thanks, Jake. I want to say, um, you guys have been very kind to me and to my family since I've started preaching a, a few weeks ago. A lot of encouragement, a lot of love. And uh, for a, a young pastor, uh, I, I don't think any pastor takes it for granted, young or old, but especially for somebody in my position, um, it's been a blessing and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to you. And uh, as we approach my installation, I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you for the way in which you've uh, cared so well for, for me and for my family. Uh, you know, I'm not going to talk much about the men's trip because a lot of people keep mentioning it, except to say uh, that it, it was a wonderful time and we've continued to do this despite a number of years of straight rain. We've gone, packed up all our belongings and gone up to Grayling, Michigan. And there have been years consecutive years where all it did was pour. I have memories of dozens of men and boys crouched under one of those 10 by 10 canopies with little streams running all around us. And we keep going back. We keep going back. And this year, we discovered not a couple miles down the road from where we camp, this is wonderful big lake with a sandy bottom. And we were able to just go down there and swim for a whole afternoon. I can't believe that we've never known about this lake. We've been there over 10 years and we've never known about this lake. All that to say, good things come to those that persevere. And, and men, well done, we persevered and we're seeing good things from this camping trip. It's been a joy. You know, we're gonna talk about perseverance. We're gonna talk about persistence this morning. Um, <clears throat> do you know that Henry Ford failed five times before he succeeded with Ford Motor Company, before he succeeded with his work, which became known, you know, in the Model T and, and other cars. Do you know that? You know that Thomas Edison attempted to uh, create electricity as we, as we know it today a thousand times. Uh, do you know that he was... Uh, treated as stupid in school and told that he wasn't going to accomplish anything. Do you know that Michael Jordan uh, was, was benched in high school for not being able to play basketball very well, for not being good enough? Now, these are all true facts, but they strike us as absurd because these men are now known for their success in the very area where they were once failures. Maybe the reason for this, that this, that this is even more surprising is that so often after repeated failure in our lives, in their lives, we are driven to hopelessness. Why is it that there are so many, if we went out into the parking lot right now and went car to car, why is it that there are so many forts? Why is it that when you get your electric bill every month, the return address on that envelope is titled Toledo Edison. Well, it's because these men didn't give up. Uh, they were persistent. They didn't give in to that hopelessness when they were confronted with failure. They didn't let rejection keep them down. So in other words, they persevered. They were persistent. They didn't stop. Now, I want to say that I'm starting here just to get our minds thinking about this idea. But the message of the gospel is not that we break on through to the other side 
We don't get to heaven just by powering through our failures and overcoming any notion that we ourselves are helpless. That's not the gospel, right? So I'm not trying to equate the message of the Bible with these men's lives and what they achieved through their sheer uh, grit. But what I do want to say is that hopelessness does have a place in every testimony of every person who comes to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And persistence does have a place in all of those stories of how you or your children or your neighbors have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone who has a saving faith in Christ has dealt with, at some level, hopelessness. And in their walk with Christ, there is persistence that must be there. Jesus calls each of us to a life of persistence as we follow him. So today, we're going to continue in our series, Pictures of Salvation, by considering the story of a woman who, of all people, should have been considered hopeless, and yet by the wonderful providence and the mercy and the love of God is brought into his family. So would you please stand with me? We're going to turn in our Bibles to the very first chapter of the book of Ruth, and we're going to read verses 1 through 22 through the end of the chapter. You can follow along on the screen if you need to. This is the word of God. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. Ruth rather. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion died, and the, woman, the, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to, your mother, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you each may find rest, each in the house of her husband, And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, 
I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do so to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The word of the Lord. And please be seated. Uh, let's stand and raise our hands in prayer before we be seated. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to bless us this morning. We thank you for the ability to worship you, to raise our voices. And now I pray that as we hear from your word, the Holy Spirit would use my words and add his power to them. And I pray that as the word is preached here week after week, that you would change us, that you would purify our hearts and our minds and our actions so that our lives would be a pleasing aroma to you. You call us to give our entire selves as a living sacrifice. And so all of our life is an act of worship, Father. Use your word to, to, to make our offering pleasing to yourself. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, our strength and our redeemer, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Before I read the passage, chapter one, I made a statement about Ruth. I said about Ruth that she of all people had a reason to be hopeless. She had a right to the feeling of hopeless as much as anyone might have that feeling, that right. But then we read the chapter, and if you were reading along and thinking about what we were reading, you recognize that what I read in chapter one doesn't really give you that impression, does it? We aren't reading about a hopeless woman. And if we were to continue reading chapters two and three and four of the book of Ruth, you would see that, again, in those chapters, my claim doesn't seem to have much traction. This claim about Ruth being able to, you know, have the maybe propensity to fall into hopelessness, it's like, well, I don't see that at all in, in the story. Where are you getting that from, Nathan? Why would I say this? Well, <clears throat> what reason may Ruth have for despair? I want to give you two reasons. I want to give you two reasons for Ruth's potential hopelessness as it relates to her coming to being accepted amongst the people of God. Or another way to say that is, I want to give you two reasons for Ruth to feel hopeless about the reality of her ever coming to be a part of God's chosen people. Two reasons. We're going to start with the big one and then go to the one that I think is secondary, but we'll start with the big one. Listen, God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that no Moabite would ever enter the assembly of the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 23, God's giving instructions to his people through the voice of his, the, his servant Moses. And one of the stipulations is that no Ammonite, I'm quoting here, no Ammonite, no Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter an assembly of the Lord. It's a pretty lock-tight decree. Well, why does God say this? What does he have against these two specific nations? What happened that would, God, that would cause God to make this sort of statement about them? Well, God goes on to explain through Moses why he's saying this. He says, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way as you came out from Egypt. And because, a second reason, they hired against you Balaam to curse you. They're never going to enter my assembly to the 10th generation because they didn't help you, because they sought out a man to curse you, and nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam. The Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing. Third reason, because the Lord your God loves you. So they've been cursed by God, Moabites have, because they sought to harm his people whom he loves. It reminded me when I was thinking about this of a, a time in my childhood where, um, you know, my, my parents did not defend us as kids all that much, you know, and, and I think it was for our good. You don't want to defend your children all the time. They can take it. They can handle it. But there was one particular time, really, I'm sure it happened more than once, but there was one time that sticks out. And it was when I was riding my bike around the block and some bigger kid around the corner from me was, you know, I don't know, speaking to me poorly. And I don't really remember what was happening. I remember I was riding my bike down the sidewalk and he said that he was going to throw the push broom through the front of my tire and then he'd done, gone and did it. And then I remember flying over the handlebars onto the concrete and then I remember going home and crying to my dad. That's the, and I remember that time, my dad walked down and, and, you know, kindly but sort of sternly talked to the guy's father and the kid denied it and whatever. But that, I remember that, that sticks out. But what I also remember about that story is that a couple of years later, you know, as kids, you go through fads, you know, Pogs, Tamagotchis, WWF, you know, punk garage rock bands, you know, all these things were a part of my life or at least I wanted them to be. One of the things that I wanted was to join the corner kids when they were pretending to do WWF in the backyard on their parents' old mattress. And uh, that whole effort was being led by the very same guy that threw the push broom through my tire. And I don't think my parents were holding out any like bad blood against that kid, but they recognized that that character of the kid, that boy, was shown in his actions, and he, ha he really wasn't that great of an influence, and they didn't like WWF anyway, so they said, Nathan, you're not going over there. I always would see them up in the tree, jumping out of the tree onto each other, you know, and I wanted to go. And they never let me go. And then later, it just so happened that that same guy, of all names, Bubba, uh, <laughs> was the first kid to start a garage band on our entire block. He and his friend, he, he was the drummer. And I wanted, there was a lot in me that wanted to, you know, be with them because, you know, I was a young kid learning guitar and, and I wanted that. And yet, you know, my, 
I don't think I ever really pushed my parents to because I could tell that they didn't want me really having much to do with that, uh, that boy, but not because he had thrown something through my tire, but because they could tell he didn't really have good character. He wasn't a good influence. He, they didn't want me around him. Now, that story just comes to my mind because that's what they were doing is only a reflection of the way that God cares for his people, right? You understand that. God says that the Moabites and the Ammonites, but as it relates to our story this morning, the Moabites wouldn't enter the nation of his people because they hated his people and because God loved his people. God loves Israel. He doesn't want them to to be mixed, to be polluted by people who don't love him and who don't love them. You recognize that he has his people's good in mind. There's nothing about them by the, you know, the, their race that makes God hate them. It's their character, and, he's, and he loves his people. He's trying to protect them. So he says, never to the 10th generation will a Moabite enter the presence of the Lord. That was a decree just like the Ten Commandments, right out of the mouth of Moses to his people. Israel, he ends with this statement, you, Israel, shall never seek their peace, the Moabites' peace, or their prosperity all of your days. It's a pretty Loctite statement, a pretty intense statement by God. One of the few that's so specific and declarative about uh, Israel's enemies. So this is no small matter for Ruth, a Moabitess, to be persistent in, is it? It's hard to persevere against something that God has decreed, don't you think? If you take God seriously, you've got to recognize this is it. How can you persevere against something like that? Think about Ruth's desire to embrace Naomi's God. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. What does that look like in the face of God's curse on the Moabites? It would appear hopeless, would it not? There's a well-known verse, if God's for you, who can be against you? And the inverse is also true. If God is against you, who can be for you? What hope do you have if God has set his face against you? Now, this is the first reason that Ruth, of all people, has a reason to potentially feel hopeless. Now, God has, like with with Cain and with Saul, set himself against the Moabites, um, and he's commanded Israel not to seek their peace, not to seek their prosperity. This gives a little more, understanding this gives a little more insight into the significance of Ruth's decision, doesn't it? Sort of deepens our um, amazement and appreciation of of the life that she chooses, and her example should cut us a little deeper realizing the surrounding implications, all right? You with me? Now, the fact that the Israelites weren't supposed to seek peace with the Moabites brings us to the second reason that Ruth Ruth would have to feel hopeless. Not only is Ruth a Moabitess, she's also married into a family that seems to be rather hopeless themselves. Think about what we read earlier. To begin, there's obviously a failure on the part of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, 
to obey what God had clearly commanded in the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 1 told us plainly that in the days of the judges, we went through the book of Judges last summer, and the theme verse of the book of Judges is what? In those days, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's sort of the, the resounding judgment of the people of that time. Everyone in Israel was doing what was right in those eyes. So the book of Ruth takes place within that time period. In the days when the judges governed, Elimelech took, uh, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man, Elimelech, went to the land of Moab to sojourn him with his, his wife and his two sons. It seems like Elimelech comes face to face with hardship in his life, and instead of enduring or persevering by faith as Israel had been called to do by God forever, like in the wilderness with the manna when there's no food to be seen and yet God provides. Instead of that, Elimelech takes matters into his own hands. He leaves the land that God had promised to them. He leaves the land where, that God had given to them and he, he goes to sojourn in Moab with his wife. And he doesn't just live there. Things intensify as they always do when we, we don't fight our sins They never get easier, and we never start sinning less magically. We start to make compromises. We start to let our defenses down. And all of a sudden, things infiltrate our lives. He doesn't just live there. He ends up having two sons that intermarry with the Moabites. Again, the people that God had said, don't seek their peace, don't seek their prosperity. Both wives intermarry. Both husbands, rather, intermarry. This is... This is, uh, this is the picture we're starting to see of Naomi's family at large. Now, listen, after Naomi's husband and sons die, she returns to Israel. And I think that in that we see Naomi's some repentance in Naomi. And I'm not, I, the scripture does not um, specify what, what, uh, to what degree Naomi was with her husband in that moving I'm not trying to say Naomi was a wicked woman, but I think what is clear is that she recognizes that God had made a judgment on her and on her sons and on her husband. And so we do know that pretty clearly. That was said in the chapter that we read together. Naomi decides that she's going to go back to the land of Israel. And along the way, she tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their mother's house. Now, we could probably, if we're thinking about it, understand multiple, multiple, multi, uh, multiple motivations to send these two daughters-in-law back to their families. You've got to understand that Naomi recognizes the likely scorn and reproach and hardship and mistreatment and probably certain, certainly singleness that's going to accompany bringing two Moabites, two women that are Moabites back into to the, the land of Israel, right? You with me? So you can understand her motivations for wanting to send them back, but it's hard to conceive of Naomi being faithful to God in urging them to return. She acknowledges in the passage we read that she hopes that God will bless them and, and show a face of kindness to them as she has, as they have shown kindness to her now dead sons and to herself. But the implications of what she's suggesting and urging in sending them back is that 
these women aren't just going to go and live in, in, you know, in Oregon rather than in Toledo or in temperance rather than in, you know, Maumee. The implication here is that she's sending these women who have been with her back to their old families, old societies, and most significantly to the worship of their former gods. Now, the first time that she urges those two ladies to go back, she doesn't say go back to your old way of life. But after, after uh, Orpah leaves, Naomi says, listen, your sister's gone back to her people and her gods. You recognize that? And she's sort of encouraging Ruth to do the same. And so, though we can understand why Naomi might want to send these ladies back where they, she thinks they might have a better life, we recognize that it's also faithless at the same time, right? right? Anytime we're pushing somebody away from the, the true and living God, it isn't accompanied with faith. So, upon arriving back in Bethlehem with Ruth, the whole city is stirred. Is this Naomi, the women of the town ask? Is this, I'm sure you put yourself in their position. You know, they, they're probably thinking, is this what happens when you turn your back on God? We didn't, we didn't fold in the face of famine and we still have our children. Maybe, you know, is this Naomi? Whoa, she's aged. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full and God has brought me back empty. Naomi, as we said earlier, recognizes that God has, his, has had his hand against, against her and her family throughout um, these years of their life where they were not living by faith. And now put yourself in Ruth's shoes once again. Perhaps you can see why she had reason to be hopeless. She's a Moabitess, and the only connection to Israel seems to be through a a, a fairly faithless branch of the family, deserters of God's people when the going really got tough. Now, that is the reality of Ruth's situation. That's what she's really facing. You need to understand that. But once we realize that, I want to move on and say, like we did earlier, Ruth's story, what we read in these wonderful, beautiful chapters, is not one of hopelessness. She is not hopeless. It's not a story of giving up, of surrendering to the the hardships of life and embracing the, the little joys that you might find along the way. It isn't a testimony of rejection. As we step, at each step, rather, in the book of Ruth, Ruth is an example of persistent faith, persistent trust, of persistent love. And we're just going to, we could go all over the book, and I read the whole book as I was thinking about this, and there's just no way to drag a congregation in this time through the whole book of Ruth. But maybe we'll preach on it more sometime. Four times in our chapter... Naomi urges Ruth to return to her own people. You remember that all she would forfeit by leaving her family, and and we've already talked about all the things she she would probably incur if she goes back to to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. Three times, Ruth perseveres. 
After the fourth time, Ruth pleads, and I urge you to, to listen. Ruth pleads, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. And then we have a beautiful confession of faith, what I take to be Ruth's confession in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where you will go, I will go. Where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. And there's a lot we could talk about in that statement. But this morning, as it relates to the subject that that we're looking at, I want to say that this is the persistence that finds Jesus Christ. This is the persistence that finds eternal life in Christ. The Holy Spirit has been working in Ruth's heart, warming her affections toward not only her mother-in-law, but to her Lord himself. She doesn't just want the safety of her mother-in-law. No. Your God will be my God. And where you go, I will go, and I will die with you, and I will be buried with you. The Holy Spirit's been working in her heart. She's well aware of all that might lie in her future if she's persistent and goes with her mother-in-law. It could be very difficult for her, and in some ways it, it was. And yet, the spark of love has been placed into her heart by the Holy Spirit, and it will not be extinguished. There's an internal change in Ruth that we aren't explicitly told about, but we see the results of. She desires to be counted part of Naomi's family, a part of God's family, and she isn't going to turn away. She isn't going to look back. I remember that, that, that Jesus, we're told in the New Testament that we love because he first loved us. Obviously, she's felt the love of Naomi, and that God has worked through that relationship somehow to warm her heart to love Naomi back and to love God. And this is her confession. And she's persistent. She's not going to turn back. Her sister-in-law does. There's a whole lot of hardship that possibly awaits her. She's looking right into the face and she is persistent. Jake touched a few weeks ago on this topic when he preached on the Seraphonician woman who came to Jesus. There's a woman who kept coming to Jesus and asking him to to cast out a demon that was in her daughter. And Jesus' first response was that, as you remember from a few weeks ago, he says that, let the children be satisfied first. He's speaking about the nation of Israel and he's, and he's speaking to the fact that he, he is, his work is in the nation of Israel amongst the Jews. He says it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, but she keeps pressing him and says, yes, but Lord, even the dogs receive the scraps that fall under the table after the children are, have, have finished eating. And he says, your daughter's healed because of your faith. Just as Jesus saw faith in this Canaanite who refused to take no for an answer, we see persistence in Ruth that not only brings her into the people of Israel, uh, even as a Moabite, but we see that God crowns her with many, many, many blessings. We see that she's embraced by the town. We see that she is able to remarry. We see that she uh, marries a godly, influential a man in Boaz, who the, 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 the book calls her kinsman redeemer. And even more, we see the, the kindness and the glory of God being showered down upon her because at the end of the book, it gets into the genealogy. It sort of ends with the genealogy. And, it's, and we learn that that 
that Ruth bears a son eventually, and that son is the father of King David, the greatest king that the Israelites ever had, the man after God's own heart. That's, that's, that's Ruth's grandson. And even more glorious than that, I, he, she's in the lineage of Christ himself, right? She, as a Moabitess, somebody who is never going to be in the presence, the assembly of God's people, is herself a great, 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 great grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the glory of God. That's God doing far more above all that we could ask or think. And all of that blessing and kindness of God was, in a way, uh, the road to that was only forged with persistence. Now, her persistence didn't make God do it. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is this. Man, if she wouldn't have persevered, none of that other stuff would have happened. You've got to recognize that. I have to recognize that. So, this morning, what do we learn about saving faith from Ruth? First, I want to go back to the idea of hopelessness. First, I'll say, it is never your life, your situation is never hopeless. God is against no repentant sinner. An Israelite, a Moabite, a Jew, a Gentile, a bar hopper, a churchgoer. He is against no man or woman who desires to be a part of his family and who comes to him in sincere faith and repentance. When, when Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians, I think, he says that fornicators and idolaters and homosexuals and thieves and covetous and drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to say, what? Such were some of you, right? God is against no repentant sinner. He will not turn you away. He calls you to seek him. And he also promises that you will find him. He will reveal himself to you. That's what we see in the story of Ruth the Moabitess, who had no place among God's people. Man, that, she should have been hopeless. But not even she was devoid of hope, and neither are you. Now, the world is full of people who have no hope. Some of you here this morning are wrestling with an unimaginable weight of hopelessness. And what I hold out to you, what the Bible holds out to you for your need is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Outside of him, there is no true hope, actually. The world has a a very legitimate cause to feel hopeless. In in Ephesians, we're we're told that, that we are outside of God and without hope in the world unless we know Jesus Christ. So the reality is, you know, the reality is that the world has a very legitimate cause to feel hopeless. But as believers, we don't want them to live that way. We don't want them to die that way. We have a great living hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and he offers himself. He came and died because he loved the world that was hopeless, that they might find hope and salvation in him. And so if you're hopeless this morning, I call you to look to Christ and to find in him, to find in him a fulfillment of the the void that you feel in your heart. He loves you and he calls you to something more. Just, you could be just like Ruth. There is no such thing as hopelessness as long as we are alive. 
and able to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we take away from Ruth is the, is the importance of persistence. God doesn't keep himself from any repentant sinner who comes seeking after him. Seek and you will find. But I want to highlight that you must seek. Like Ruth, you must be persistent. Now, last September, I went with my family to Colorado, and then we drove around Utah. We visited all the parks. We went to the North Rim of the Grand Canyon, then we came home. I'm driving on some scenic highway, byway, whatever. I don't recall what it was. We all have GPS, which means we don't look at the McNally Atlas anymore. I don't remember where I was, but I remember we were driving on a highway, and Aaliyah said, hey, you know, I read on some forum online that there's, there's a mine around here that some guy owns, and this guy owns a rock shop, and if you go to the rock shop, he might let you go to the mine for free and look for something that's called a septarian nodule. They're unique to that area. And so we're driving along and we say, okay, fine, let's try and find the rock shop. So we get on our phones with the signal we're able to get out in Utah and we, we find a shop that we think is where this guy works, own, lives. And we go over there and it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a basically a decrepit shed on the side of the road and I think it's like Dave's Rocks, you know? And... Uh, and he's got rocks all over the yard, and the only thing in the shed is this massive grinding blade without any guard where he works and polishes stones. And we go to him, and we ask about these septarian nodules, and he says, yeah, actually, I did own the rights to this mine, but actually, it elapsed a long time ago, but uh, nobody seems to know that, so if you want to go, feel free. And he says, what are you driving? And we look at our transit rear-wheel drive 350, you know, Six cylinder. And he goes, ooh. He says, I don't know. I mean, you could try it, but you got to get off the main highway. You're going to go down this road that's all dirt, and it's going to get really bad. The longer you go on this road, it's, gonna, it's been rainy here. You're going to start going through mud pits on the road. I don't know as if a four, uh, you need, probably need a four by four, an off roading vehicle, but I'm cheap. And so I'm not going to rent a vehicle just so we can go look for some rock. And so we get back in the road and we eventually find the, we're driving around, we find the road he tells us to go down. And we, we go for a couple miles and as we get further in, the road wears away more and more. And finally, I'm at the point where every time we approach what looks to be like a small pond in the middle of the road, I get out and I start going like this around, around the pond to see if we can make it. And eventually, Ali and I probably hike a good mile down the road with our van way back behind us just to see if we can keep going. Well, the end of the story is that I, I did make it through every one of those puddles. I, what I did was I would reverse a good, you know, 100 yards at least, then floor it. Abs, I mean, I, I, I was fishtailing in the back, mud flapping up on the back windshield, you know. I made it through to the very end. And we get to the end, and it's just this big field. I'm thinking, where is this mine? I've gotten all the way here. So then we start crawling around in the field, and sure enough, there's these, like, ditches, and they're filled with rocks, thousands of rocks. And there's, there's somebody doing construction back there. It's just a mess. It's not at all what you think of when you think, I'm going to go into a mine and look for this septarian nodule jewel. 
Now listen, the reason I, I, I spend to explain, I spend time to explain this whole process is I, I want to say that we could have said that we sought when it came to tracking down that, that, that man who owned the land who could give us permission, right? We had to like do some serious digging online and asking people around that town if we, until we found that man. It took some work. We could have said that we tried to go rock hunting, but we couldn't at that point. You recognize that. We could have said that we really tried to seek those septarian nodules when he told us where to go and we got onto the road and I hit some of those mud patches. I gotta say, hey kids, I tried. We tried to go looking for him, we just couldn't. We could have said the same thing when we actually got to that massive field with rocks all over the place and we're looking around for something that looks like somewhat like a lumpy potato. <laughs> you know? We took back, by the way, we took back dozens of rocks. We did find one. One was a septarian nodule. The reality is, is all through that story, all through that afternoon, I could have legitimately said, oh, I saw it, but I didn't find because I quit. You recognize that. Persistence doesn't stop when it gets hard. It is not deterred. It's not swayed. Jesus illustrates this by saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who finds this fine pearl that he loves. And so upon finding the pearl, he goes and sells all that he has to possess that one thing. The merchant will not be swayed. He's found the thing that matters most to him, the septarian nodule of his life. And he is going to stop at nothing to get that thing. He's persistent. Everything else is dispensable. Family, former deities, acceptance in the community, the idea of ever getting married one day, it's dispensable. Everything else is sold for the purpose of obtaining the thing that really matters. And God is happy to be found when we are willing to give up everything, everything in our lives for the sake of finding him. When we come to the point of recognizing our hopelessness without him and we're persistent in seeking him. So what I call you to is persistence in seeking Christ. Persist in seeking him and you will find him. He's no genie in a bottle though. It's not, oh, I want him, oh, I'm going to rub the bottle and out he comes. That is not God. Hence the need to persevere. Persevere in seeking him. He doesn't call us to persevere because he's mean. He doesn't call us to persevere because he's teasing us. He's calling us to persevere and seeking him to refine us, to change our character even as we seek to, to come to know God. The finding of him somewhat lies in the seeking of him. We are changed as we seek. So seek and you shall find. Also, I want to say that to those of you that have laid hold of Christ, maybe you're thinking, I, I, I am a Christian, Nathan. To those of you who have found the pearl of great price, don't make the mistake of thinking that your need for per per persistence, the need for persistence rather, doesn't apply to you. A couple of weeks ago in our, our Sunday class before worship, we, we talked about the fact that Martin Luther said of repentance, when our Lord said repent, he meant that all of life should be repentance. Repentance might be where salvation start, begins, but we don't move past it. And the same is true with persistence. The Christian life is one that starts in persisting and carries on in persisting. Sometimes we call it perseverance of the saints, and God is at work in that perseverance, and yet we see that in Ruth that 
God expects something of us as well. That's why Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And then what does he say? Daily. Daily and follow me. Carrying a cross daily, that's persistence. Do you want him? Do you trust that he is the only true source of happiness and that everything else can fall away, that that's all you need? In Matthew 26, Jesus says, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. It isn't persistence to fight until it's hard and then to give up. You can't claim endurance if you only go until you get tired and then you stop. Persistence is when the world, the flesh, and the devil tempt you to not give in, not to surrender to to those things. And sometimes that persistence is going to look like resisting Satan. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, just like Jesus resisted Satan in the garden. And sometimes that persistence is going to look like fleeing your sins, right? Like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. One is resisting, the other is fleeing, but they're both persistence toward righteousness and holiness toward toward God. So I want to ask you, where are you tired of persisting? Where are you tired of pressing on? Where have you settled for less than persistent devotion to God? Where have you said, I did pray, but he didn't answer? Or I tried reading the Bible, but I didn't understand. Or I I did seek to fight that temptation, but, you know, God didn't give me the strength. Or I, I gave in anyways. Or I've tried to teach my kids, but. Or I've tried loving them, but. I've tried to change, but. Now, these are all excuses we tell ourselves when we fail to persevere and to endure. But we are called to press on toward the goal as Ruth pressed on with Naomi toward life with her and life with her God. Do you feel hopeless? You're not. We have a living hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Press on in seeking him. And as you seek him, don't grow tired of that pursuit. Don't let your striving grow weary, your persistence grow, t- grow weak. Jesus is the one who says that the men who put their hand to the plow toward him and start coming after him and look back are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And so therefore I say, persist on, press on, and find the salvation and the glory that Ruth did. God will grant it to you. He is against no repentance sinner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness that extends down to us when we could do nothing to save ourselves. We thank you for the realization of that, and we pray that you would, um, we pray that we would seek after you. And Father, where we have given ourselves license to be lazy or excuses to stop trying so hard, that your Holy Spirit would convict us and that our love for you would cause us to, to get up again and to press on toward the goal, the prize. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.